This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and welcome to the fifth and final installment of our special week-long series, More Than Money, The Cost of Monopolies in America. All this week, we've been looking at the view, ascendant now among key members of the Biden administration, that corporate monopolies don't just harm competition and consumers, they harm democracy. To understand just how powerfully these reformers believe it's time to revamp antitrust regulation, let's pick up right where we left off yesterday with the last words of the show uttered by Barry Lynn, executive director of the Open Markets Institute. Well, what will allow us to recapture our foundational liberties is to empower every single citizen of the United States to understand what is the threat which is that when you allow concentration of power over communications, Google and Facebook, power a concentration of power over the basic things of life, uh, you yourself will lose, you know, what is the threat is your democracy, your liberty, the community in which you live. And if you look over here into this toolbox, what you see is a set of tools that Americans created over the course of two hundred years, mm. two centuries, yeah. to solve every one of these problems. Lynn's evocation of history is justified. In episode three of this series, we talked about the successes of the trust-busting progressive era. However, anytime I hear anyone advocate a set of solutions, quote, to solve every one of these problems, it also sounds more than a little bit like fairy dust. So today, we're asking, have antitrust reformers like Barry Lynn, like FTC Chair Lena Khan, like Jonathan Cantor, head of the DOJ's antitrust division, have they identified the right problem but the wrong solution? Can modernizing how the U.S. regulates monopolies meaningfully reduce inequality? Can it meaningfully strengthen democracy? Can it actually make people more free? Well, joining us today, Matt Stollard, is with us. He's director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project and author of a newsletter called Big. It's about the politics of market power and antitrust regulation. Matt Stoller, welcome to you. Thanks for having me. Jack Beatty joins us as well. He's On Point's news analyst. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Magna. Hello, Matt. So, Matt, I wonder if you could start by helping us get this speci- your specific take on what exactly it is that um, more vigorous prosecution and regulation uh, and, the, and, and that rethinking of what monopolies mean in the modern economy, why uh, you and others believe that that can actually like, help things like inequality and democracy and protect even people's liberty? Yeah, I mean, if you, it's a great question. And I think it starts with with the concept of fear. So if you talk to a lot of people in business these, these days, whether they are workers, whether they are entrepreneurs, engineers, whatever they are, everyone except middlemen and financiers and monopolists, they are often afraid to speak out about what is going in their corporations or in the markets that in which they operate. And because of that, they can't actually try to make changes uh, to those markets and to those corporations. And they can't fundamentally exercise their right to free speech, which we all ostensibly have in America, but they are effectively censored by dominant firms who can retaliate against them, who can, in some cases, actively censor them. And that is 
a fundamental political problem. It is perhaps the fundamental political problem, because if you can't actually say, here's what's going on and here's how to fix it, then how can you actually propose policy solutions and enact them through our democratic institutions? So everything sort of stems from the raw power that dominant firms, dominant middlemen, dominant financiers have in our economy. And I mean, I, I could go through some of the elements of how monopolization uh, induces inequality, regional inequality, uh, political inequality, income inequality, asset inequality. But the fundamental, I think the way that I can, I can see this, and I talk to business people all the time, is just some people uh, can speak, can be their free selves, but most people have a powerful boss that that doesn't let them do that. Okay, so Matt, I'm going to want to hear some of those more specific um, uh, analysis that you're talking about regarding regional inequality, et cetera, in just a second. But Jack, jump in here. Your first response to what Matt Stoller is saying. Well, uh, I, I, I get it. I get this idea of the pervasive fear that uh, uh, employers can have over their employees. And yet, look at, the, look at the exceptions. Didn't we just have a whistleblower from Facebook come forward and, and surface the uh, way in which this company has been exploiting uh, fear among teenage girls about their weight and so on. I mean, that was a moment of revelation. That was a brave employee who came out and spoke. So I'm not saying that just that, that, that puts a hole in the idea that employers don't exercise undue power, but it does show that there's a new vigilance and a new cha- willingness to challenge even, even some of the most powerful uh, of these institutions. Matt, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm not talking about employer employees or just that. I'm talking about everyone, right? So I uh, can give you, so I I was lobbied once when I worked in the Senate by a a company that made, um, they made a certain office equipment and they were opposing the Staples Office Depot merger because they said, hey, we have a, a company, about 100 employees and we basically sell to Staples and we sell to Office Depot. And if they merge, the guy at Office Depot, the 25-year-old who buys in our category of products, doesn't like us. Doesn't not really know much about it, but he doesn't like us. And he will no longer buy from us. And that is the end of our company. And don't tell anybody that we're here because they will retaliate against us. I mean, this is a wealthy guy who owns a you know medium-sized company. And I said, well, well does, everybody, does anybody else in the industry feel this way? He said, absolutely everyone does. And we're all afraid. And I talk to people who run, I mean, I, I do reporting on a bunch of different areas, but you know, there is a monopoly in, I think the most interesting monopoly is over cheerleading. So there's a company owned by Bain Capital called Varsity Brands that rolled up all the cheerleading contests in, in, the, in the US. And I, I talk to people who are coaches and entrepreneurs and gym owners. And like, they, they're always telling me, they're like, Matt, don't, don't mention my name, and, but you have no idea how deep it goes. Like it's the CIA. Right. And this is true in every industry. It's not it's not like just the tech industry. It's not just employees. It is absolutely pervasive. It's true among venture capitalists. And so you you do see when you have massive, massive pushback against a company like Facebook um, and, you know, in which has been doing really bad things for 15 years. And finally, you know, in, in 
2020, uh, 2021, you see a, a, a whistleblower come forward, but that really is the exception that proves the rule when a company is really politically vulnerable. A very wealthy, very empowered person might come forward and say, you know, hey, we have some problems here, but that doesn't speak to how most people in the economy actually operate. In fact, it speaks pretty much to the opposite. So mm. the, the environment of fear is pervasive, it is dangerous, and it is a direct result of the market power that firms have and that monopolists have in our economy. You know, uh, to your point, uh, in December of 2021, uh, in a Senate subcommittee hearing, the subcommittee on antitrust, essentially, uh, the chair of that of that subcommittee, Senator Amy Klobuchar, kind of in almost in a passing like offhand remark, echoed what you're saying, Matt, because she she said. Yeah, sometimes I wonder if the same thing's going on in Congress, that her colleagues fear, have that same sense of fear for um, that it's too risky to cross a monopoly, um, even as a member of Congress. And that might be some of that might be one of the things that's blocking um, sort of more uh, rapid advancement of uh, p- some pending legislation that could reform antitrust laws. I mean, Zoe Lofgren, who, you know, she was, she's a, a rep- representative from Silicon Valley, but, you know, she is very strongly in the camp of Google. And I, I believe one of the reasons that she is, is because, you know, she says, if we don't protect Google from antitrust, then, you know, they probably won't be expanding more in in my district. And I think that's that's a very common problem that people have. You could just look at Amazon with um, you know, with their second headquarters, where hundreds of cities just mayors just threw themselves at Amazon to get any commercial uh, activity whatsoever, and that's sort of the the positive way where he says, "I will." In, it's an inducement. I'll give you a second headquarters. But the negative uh, aspect where he can take, where all of these firms, and there aren't as many firms as there used to be there because of mergers, firms can threaten to leave. And so they have power over entire communities, which is very much like what we saw in the late 19th century. But we're seeing it again today. Mm. Jack, does that does that sway you a little bit more? Well, uh, it, it, it does. And uh, another uh, congressperson from Silicon Valley, Ro Khanna, is out with a new book in which he argues precisely that the concentration of, of uh, big tech in one place is 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 bad for uh, democracy in this way that it 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 exacerbates the tension between country and city that is driving some of the fever of Trumpism and he recommends that that these companies spread out and he points to Intel which built a big uh, factory in Ohio as an example of what needs to be done to to remedy the inequality of opportunity and of life chances between city and country. And he says it's up to this industry to spread out and share the wealth uh, uh, more broadly. Mm. Now, we're just uh, heading rather rapidly to our, towards our first break. But um, Matt Stoller, I, I have to say, I'm, you know, the, the fear within corporations, I'm, I'm kind of more aligned with what Jack has been saying, that, that that may be a problem that requires whistleblower reform. But I do want to hear more from you when we come back uh, from the break about how you draw the line specifically to 
monopolies and you know regional inequality and again that bigger that even that further that bigger question about then what impact that does it have on just you know the strength and well-being of American democracy so we'll continue to explore that when we come back this is the fifth and final episode of our special series more than money the costs of monopoly in America this is on point Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today it's our final episode in our special week-long series that we're calling More Than Money, The Cost of Monopolies in America. Jack Beatty is with us. He's On Point's news analyst and also author of Age of Betrayal, The Triumph of Money in America, 1865 to 1900. And Matt Stoller joins us as well. He is director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project, author of the newsletter Big, and of the book Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. Okay, so Matt, then give me an example here. How is it um, that you, or what what leads you to think that more vigorous antitrust regulation, prosecution, and again that expanded view uh, of monopolies doing democratic harm? Like, say we got all that, how would that then um, reduce a problem like like income inequality, which we know? Uh, I mean, we've seen from history and actually even right now that radical income inequality does indeed weaken the a democracy. Yeah. So if you look at, I mean, the simplest way to understand that is that firms just have, there's been so much consolidation that most labor markets are now highly consolidated, which is to say that, you know, when you try to get another job in a similar industry where you have a similar skill set, it's often very hard because there aren't other employers or there are very few. So to take an example, in 2019, the Trump administration allowed two gold mines, the two big gold, gold, biggest gold mines in Nevada to merge. And those immediately after merging, uh, they the, the, the combined company started paying its workers less and got rid of the union and also uh, started paying suppliers less. So not just workers, but also the suppliers to the gold mining outfit. And that's just very standard. What you see when there are fewer uh, firms that are that, that employ, they you just have less leverage as a worker to bargain for higher wages. So there are kind of two big trends that happened since the early 1980s that 
One is the attack on unions, which undermine the bargaining power of workers by saying you you can't get together with your colleagues and bargain. And the other is the consolidation of mm. leverage on the part of capital, where there are now just fewer employers to bargain with. And both of those are pretty destructive um, to the ability of workers to bargain for better wages. And not just workers who are you know low wage, but also you know you've seen collusion against workers who are, you know, engineers, high level engineers in, in Silicon Valley, for example, there are, are no poach, no poaching scandals of firms like Google and Lucasfilms and others. So what you see is it has been consolidation of labor markets. And as a result, the, the share that's going to capital has gone up and the share that's going to labor has gone mm-hmm, down. Mm-hmm. No, point well taken. Um, and it also, you know, makes intuitive sense because the very argument uh, for uh, in favor of competition, you know, in any market, uh, it works. It works in the labor market as well, as you're saying. But I would say, you know, uh, on the ground, I can think of at least one example uh, that doesn't quite. Um, fit the pattern that you're talking about, Matt, because, you know, maybe it's because they still have strong labor unions. We've seen huge consolidation in the airline industry, right, since, uh, you know, for the past 40 years or so. But we still have um, pilots unions and um, flight attendant unions, for example, that, as far as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, are still able to rather vigorously, um, you know, negotiate on behalf of their their members, regardless of how much consolidation there's been in the industry. Uh, so, uh, unfortunately, that's there, while there are unions and they do have some bargaining power, the the actual wages of of pilots they're, they're and and um, uh, and you know and flight attendants has they they have nowhere near the amount of leverage and and wage growth that they used to have. So in the nineteen I don't know nineteen sixties when you became a pilot. Uh, for Delta, for example, they would put you in a room and say, okay, you know, give you an inspirational speech and say, all of you are going to become millionaires, right? It just was known that that was what was going to happen in that career path. Mm. And in the early, in the early 2000s, you saw a bunch of consolidation of airlines and then, and bankruptcies. And then they said to the unions, you know, you got to do a bunch of givebacks. And now it's, you know, it, they're still unions, right? Pilots still have rights, but nothing like it used to be, nothing like that security um, and nothing like that wage growth. And maybe you don't think that pilots should have had that kind of um, of, of bargaining leverage and, and that kind of wage capacity. But the fact is it has declined pretty dramatically. Mm. And I think that you would see that in a lot of con- consolidated areas, mm-hmm. most J- of them. Yeah, no, no, I, I, t- I totally take your point. Jack, what do you think? Well, I'm I'm just wondering. I mean, I, I certainly see the connection between concentration and uh, labor market rigidity. You, there are fewer employers with which to with whom to bargain. But it it does the connection to unionization seems to me an independent variable. That is uh, uh, quite apart from the size. In fact, you could argue that the si- concentration of industry should make unionization more tempting and quote easier. So I would argue that the fundamental problem isn't that the industries, uh, in regard to inequality, isn't that the industries are 
concentrated. It's that we have no labor law reform in this country. Mm. It, it, it reached a high tide in, in the late 1970s and couldn't get through the Senate. And as a result, labor, you know, is is uh, is hogtied. They can't organize. And and I look at the 1960s. Real family incomes went up 41 percent. Unionization was 35 percent. I don't know whether that's a causal connection or not, but it sure looks like one. Whereas today, unions are less than 10 percent, and real family incomes are flat of falling. And I and I and I just think that the issue of uh, unions is a separate one uh, from the issue of concentration, and that even and that concentration could actually, if the laws were right, help uh, unionization. Mm. Matt, let me just uh, add one quick thing to what Jack said because, um, you know, Jack talked about it's that labor laws more specifically might be the problem. I would also add that. Um, you know, when we're talking about the power of corporations, and you know better than 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 anyone uh, in the political sphere, could no matter what, or even if some of these companies, let's say, were broken up, um, or, or the markets they were in were made more uh, more competitive, more vigorous, we still wouldn't have campaign finance reform, for example. We still wouldn't have major changes in how dark money flows through politics. So the same amount of money essentially might be flowing to, you know, to to Washington, uh, and that will continue to damage democracy no matter how much um, needed antitrust reform happens. What do you think about that? Yeah, so these are both great uh, points, and I think what you often I often hear these kinds of arguments, and we've heard these kinds of arguments for a long time. So we just did a study that showed that firms who merge and become dominant um, almost immediately after they merge and combine operations start spending a lot more on lobbying. And when firms become when markets become less concentrated, there's more competition firms spend less money on lobbying. Mm. And the reason that they do this is because when you're an executive, you have a limited amount of time. And when you face uh, when you face competition, you're focused on your competition. And when you don't face competition, like say you're a Live Nation Ticketmaster, you spend your time lobbying um, to maintain your monopoly. And you spend your time trying to find you know, tax concessions and various other, you, know, you try to capture politics. So competition just creates this dynamic where executives cannot, just cannot focus on politics as much. Um, and so, you know, we see that in the data. And the other, the other argument um, from, from Jack, which I think is, it, it often is a, it's a sort of standard uh, idea that's been held by the, the labor left since the early 1980s is that larger firms are easier to organize and that the problem has always been labor law and that's nothing to do with monopoly. And that is actually not, you know, historically the anti-monopoly movement has always been about the, the labor movement. It's, it, and you can, you know, Amy Klobuchar, Senator Amy Klobuchar's book has been about this, but there's, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, Senator John Sherman, when he took, passed the Sherman Act said that, you know, the, the autocrat of trade could raise the price in the consumer and lower the, the wage to the worker because it's all about power. Um, there's, there's, and when, when you have a big company, uh, like say John Deere, they can afford to just, you know, if one factory goes on strike, you can see this going all the way back to Carnegie 
If one factory goes on strike, but other factories can keep going, they can just wait out the workers. And that's what you that's what you see, right? Big companies can break strikes really easily because they have the financial muscle to do that, whereas smaller companies just don't have the financial muscle to do that. So the way to understand the problem of, of market power and antitrust and labor law, bankruptcy law, all of the campaign finance, is that they're all part and parcel of, of what we call competition policy or reducing the power, economic uh, concentrations of power in our economy, because economic concentrations of power corrupt our politics, they lower our wages, they raise prices, they censor us, they make it harder to be free citizens. Mm -hmm. And so you have this whole, you know, as, as Barry Lynn said yesterday, you have this whole toolbox, which includes a lot of different things, but fundamentally the problem is concentrations of power. And so, you know, there, it's not a coincidence that in the 1960s, we had strong labor laws and we also had incredibly strong antitrust enforcement. And we had more reasonable bankruptcy statutes and we had more reasonable tax policies and all the rest of it. It's because the philosophy that they were operating under, which had come since the 1930s, was about reducing private economic concentrations of power. And it's not a coincidence that in the 1980s, the Reagan administration attacked labor law vehemently and completely relaxed antitrust laws so that the firms who were breaking unions could also combine with each other. Well, Matt Stoller... Director of Research at the American Economic Liberties Project, author of Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy, and also of the newsletter Big. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. So Matt's putting forward a very uh, passionate and persuasive argument about the ways in which essentially when we're talking, we're talking about power, right? The consolidation of power amongst a small group of, of very large corporations and therefore, as Matt describes, the reduction of power amongst the people, which is essential for the healthy functioning of a small d democracy. So antitrust reformers are looking to somehow through the law uh, and through regulation rebalance that power a little bit. And one of the folks they have on their side, Matt Stoller mentioned, is Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. Now, we spoke with her a little bit earlier this week. As I mentioned um, er uh, earlier, she is the chairwoman um, of a Senate subcommittee on competition policy and also on the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. And I asked her, like, ultimately... Some of these laws that are being proposed in the Senate, some that are being um, advanced uh, or regulations that are being advanced currently at the FTC are going to meet headwinds at the Supreme Court, specifically because certain members of the Supreme Court, Justice Gorsuch, have declared themselves even before they ascended to the high court as foes of the administrative state. So what's going to happen when the rubber meets the road? And here's how Senator Klobuchar responded. Look, I am the one senator that asked every single nominee about antitrust, and I am very well aware, especially in the case of Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, of their views. Although Kavanaugh, in one case before the court, actually sided uh, with the people like, at the time, Justice Breyer and Kagan and others that are more in favor of, I believe, the original intent of the Sherman and Clayton Act. So, but overall, they're so conservative on antitrust. They literally said, raise our hand, look how we 
embrace the Bork doctrine and so pick us for the court. And that's what happened. One of many reasons. Um, and so when I look at this, I think we need new laws because if we just go with the current laws and we don't go with the times and the changes we need to make, we're just going to let them keep interpreting these laws in a more and more ridiculously narrow basis. Now, that's just a sliver of my conversation with Senator Amy Klobuchar. It was quite a lively one because she cares a lot about antitrust. So you can hear the full unedited conversation in our On Point podcast feed. So go to your podcast app and search for On Point and definitely take a listen to that. Well, let me turn now to Carl Shapiro. He's a professor at the Graduate School of the University of California, Berkeley. And more importantly, he was formerly Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Economics at the Antitrust Division of the U.S. Department of Justice. He served there twice, from 2009 to 2011 and 1995 to 1996. Professor Shapiro, welcome to you. Hi, thanks for having me. So first of all, I've been starting this week to asking everyone the fundamental question about what is their take? What is your take on this assertion from folks like Matt Stoller, folks like FTC Chair Lena Khan, that a rethinking of how monopolies are regulated and even prosecuted in this country is essential to protecting democracy. Your, your, your thought to that? Well, I live in the real world of antitrust enforcement, so I'm all for a rethinking. As an academic, I welcome that. But in the real world, we have a statute that says, for example, mergers are illegally illegal if they may substantially lessen competition. And when you go to court, you have a case, T-Mobile Sprint, for example. I testified on behalf of, of the states who challenged that merger. It's not about democracy. You don't tell the federal judge, you know, here's what we need for democracy or our freedoms. I love the soaring rhetoric, but the real world is you've got to convince the judge that the merger will substantially lessen competition or may do so. So that's an economic concept. So I'm all about how do we move things in the right direction. I've been working for 25 years since I first served in the Justice Department, to strengthen antitrust enforcement. And that's a matter of what is the case law, what, are the, what, is, what do you convince a judge of, what are the economic evidence. Uh, and we do need stronger antitrust enforcement, but it's got to be done in a way that reflects the reality of, of litigation that's how the Justice Department enforces the antitrust laws. They mm. go to court. Professor so, Shapiro, so though, let me just... I want to get to reality. Yeah, but but it, we will over the, the remainder of the program today. But I'd also offer that the real world is what we make of it. It's what we make it into, especially when it comes to, to um, how courts interpret the law. I mean, you know, thinking about the Sherman Act, there was a world before the Sherman Act and a world after the Sherman Act. And I think what Stoller and Kahn uh, uh, and Lynn are all arguing for is that we need to reshape what the real world of the law is uh, in order to achieve a bigger, a bigger goal here. And we've just got 30 seconds before the break. So give me a quick response to that. And we'll pick up on the other side of the break. That's exactly what I'm trying to do, and I think we need to do. We need to convince the judges and move the case law in the direction to help so the government can challenge more mergers successfully and go after monopolies more successfully. And until, uh, until you have new legislation, though, you have to work with the existing case law and the judiciary, and there are ways to do that. Okay, so we'll talk about how when we come back. Carl Shapiro, Jack Beatty, stand by. We'll be back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. 
From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. It's our final episode of our week-long series that we're calling More Than Money, The Cost of Monopolies in America, where we've been taking a look all week long at this notion held by several influential members of the Biden administration that it's time to rethink antitrust regulation in this country, not just to protect consumers from harm, but to protect American democracy from harm. I'm joined by Jack Beatty. He's On Point's news analyst, author of Age of Betrayal. And Carl Shapiro is with us as well. He's professor at the Graduate School of the University of California, Berkeley, served a couple of times in the DOJ as Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Economics in the Antitrust Division there. So, Pro- Professor Shapiro, you're talking about like what happens in the real world after the soaring rhetoric has delivered. So let's talk about a real-world case and get, I want to get your, your view on, on its efficacy or, uh, right now. And that is the FTC's decision to sue Facebook for alleged violations of the Sherman Act when it acquired Instagram and WhatsApp. Now, Facebook tried to stop that case from moving forward. But now, you know, as we know, recently a court ruled that it can move forward. So this is kind of a big one. The FTC under Lena Khan is saying, OK, we're going to do this. We're, we're going to push on um, on certain current uh, giant corporations. Is this one of those real world cases that, uh, well, first of all, let me say, what is your take on, on this case in particular? Well, it's clearly a big case. <clears throat> Excuse me. The um, uh, the What the FTC is now seeking to do in court is to really challenge the two acquisitions by Facebook, the acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp, which were around eight to 10 years ago. Um, so if they're successful, they might very well get Facebook to have to divest those those uh, those services, which would be a big deal. Uh, but the case won't go to trial for another year or two. It'll be appealed. So um, it's it's uh, it's a merger case now, effectively uh, a consummated merger. They're trying to unwind, uh, and I wouldn't hold your breath because these things take time. So so that's it's it's fairly conventional in the sense that it's a merger case, but of course it's a huge one. And so is that the kind of real-world approach, though, that you think might be effective uh, in meeting, you know, in, in, get, in advancing, you know, Lena Khan's bigger goal about protecting democracy? Because Facebook is looked at directly as one of the chief, you know, the threats when it comes to misinformation that weakens a democracy. Well, because of Facebook's enormous influence, yes, anything you do with Facebook, and if you split them up, it would have impl- important implications for for its basically important form of media. So it it affects what people learn and what people perceive the world around them. You know, Fox News has a lot more impact, however, um, you know, in terms of of people's getting misinformation. Well, I shouldn't say more; they both have a big impact. So, so yes, that type of huge merger in that industry, sure, it's going to affect our democracy. 
but that's not really what's going to be in front of the court. In front of the court is going to be, did it lessen competition? Okay. So I guess what I'd love to learn from you now is you, you heard Matt Stoller, um, and, you know, we've spent all week talking about this. I mean, what is what is it that you think um, these you know, new Brandeisians, as they're called, what do you think it is that they're, they're missing? Um, because you're saying that there's some kind of disconnect between what they're, what they're aiming for um, and what actually happens, as you said, in the real world. Well, I guess there's diagnosis and then there's solution. Diagnosis, uh, I agree with them that we need stronger antitrust enforcement. But the reality, the evidence shows that in many industries, what we're seeing is large firms are growing their shares by being efficient, by giving consumers what they want. Uh, Amazon's a good example of that. Um, Walmart was in an earlier day. So, uh, and this is a global, this is globalization, this is economies of scale, this is information technology changing. So those are very deep economic forces so I don't think we want to push against those. That would reduce economic growth and, and uh, overall well-being. Um, so we need to recognize that a lot of the uh, growth of large firms is a natural byproduct uh, of, of the 21st century economy and not try to fight against that. It's worldwide. It's not just the U.S. and something about Robert Bork mesmerized you know, us all in the U.S. It's worldwide. Um, so, so there's... Those are underlying economic forces we need to respect. Uh, then the other thing is, when I say the real world, I'm just saying, what do we actually want to do when we look at a merger? Uh, for example, um, we, we want to let smaller firms merge to be able to be more effective and compete against bigger firms because they might get efficiencies from merging. Uh, I'm against an approach which Chair Khan has advocated since she's been in office, that efficiency should not be counted at all in mergers. And I, I don't see that. I think that's that's not wise in terms of economic policy. Mm. Jack Beatty, I'd love to hear your take on this. Well, I'm just wanting to get at this issue of efficiency, uh, Professor Shapiro. In her writings in the Yale Law Review piece and also in the Harvard Law Review, uh, Commissioner Kahn makes the point that um, – Predatory pricing is something that courts have just said, oh, no, we, we can't even recognize that. That's just efficiency. That's just get low prices. And the, the, the sort of Borkian doctrine and the way in which it has colonized the judiciary or the legal profession, at least, makes it almost impossible to argue that, say, Amazon has reached its peak uh, of, of power through what looks like predatory pricing. The way she puts it is they approached publishers the way a cheetah approaches a gazelle <laughs> and, 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 you know, sell or other or, or not. And they, and they lower the price uh, beneath cost, it would seem. Anyway, is that a relevant criterion anymore? And is that, does that complicate the efficiency argument? This is a great example of where I would differ with, with Chair Khan and, and many of the neo-Brandeisians, predatory pricing. So I agree that the courts have, been, uh, have, have very greatly narrowed the scope in which predatory pricing can be challenged. This was the Brook Group decision in 1993. I've written about how to fix that and how to open the aperture and make it easier for plaintiffs to win. I described this in my paper, Antitrust, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It. Um, so uh, we can do better here. The Supreme Court has put up too many hurdles. But take Amazon as an example. 
a, a reasonable approach. We don't want to stop firms from competing on price, even large, powerful firms. We do want them to not to do predatory pricing. I think there's a widespread agreement, and and Khan's paper actually, I think, would say this too: that we want for predatory pricing to be some notion of below cost. And you you mentioned below cost. Well, Amazon is not. I've not seen evidence they are pricing below cost. They are reducing their costs by by negotiating hard with suppliers, but then when they sell the products, they're not below cost. Amazon Prime is is a profitable, rather brilliant marketing strategy. So uh, even if we f- were to fix the law, if you were, we, we will. I don't see that Amazon would be engaged in predatory pricing. They're providing fantastic services to many consumers, especially during the pandemic. Hmm. I guess what I'm what I'm struggling with here is: Are you saying, Professor Shapiro, that that the consumer welfare standard is is adequate, uh, is still an adequate tool by which to measure the harms that monopolies can do? Because that that is a fundamental philosophical difference than from the neo Brandeisians who who all week we've been hearing they say that it's just inadequate because harm. Uh, is not just how much you pay, right, or how a few competitors are in a market. So help me understand your ta- your view here. So I uh, advocate using the term, the protecting competition standard. And I testified in front of the FTC at their hearings about this a few years ago. The What I mean by that is we want antitrust laws to protect competition. If cons- If we're talking about consumers, that makes sure that we get lower prices and firms don't collude to raise prices or have a big firm engage in predatory pricing and jack up the price later to harm consumers. But protecting competition is not just about consumers. It's also about protecting workers. It's about protecting farmers. Matt Stoller mentioned the, you know, the danger that if we have very few choices among employers, workers could be harmed. Around the time I was at DOJ, we brought a case against two chicken processors that merged because we thought they would depress what they were paying to chicken farmers, growers they're called, in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. So the goal is to protect competition. The, the, it's not just about consumers. It's about competition as a process that we respect and we want, we want to deliver for all of us. And it's not just about price or short run. It's very often about innovation. We don't want dominant firms to be able to squelch competitors that would come in and shake things up and provide new technologies, new options. So we need to look longer term, we need to look dynamics, we need to look at innovation. Really got to think about competition as a process, not just uh, prices. Okay, well, I want to just um, take a tiny tangent here for a moment, because no matter what happens uh, in the future, any changes at the federal level, uh, regulatory reform, additional prosecutions, that's actually going to have to happen, Uh, Professor Shapiro, as you know, through specific government agencies. So there is a question about whether those agencies are up to the task. Well, the, the primary agencies are the Antitrust Division in the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission. Um, they, uh, one of the things I'm concerned about is, is that expertise and experience in these areas is being devalued now. Um, and uh, it's, it's the people at those agencies who've been litigating cases, investigating cases, we need them, and we need more of them, and we need more resources for them, but they also need to use those resources wisely. 
So um, there seems to be bipartisan support for giving more resources to the antitrust agencies. I support that, and I hope it will happen. Okay. Well, you know, we actually spoke with Rohit Chopra, who's currently the consumer, the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. In 2018 to 2021, though, he was a commissioner on the Federal Trade Commission, and here's what he told us. I think that the individuals who work at the FTC have been restrained and almost handcuffed by the political leadership for decades. What I saw were people who wanted to actually go to court and stop some of this misconduct, but all the time they were pushed by commissioners to essentially uh, take a pro-monopoly policy position. And then he also told us that he believes an important part of restoring the American tradition of fighting anti-competitive abuses means investing in the FTC. But he also said that's just one part of the solution. We need to make sure that we have actual law enforcers running our agencies. And we certainly do when it comes to the new chair, Lena Khan. But we also may need new and updated laws. I saw firsthand how hard it is to combat illegal mergers and conduct. Um, Monopolists and other dominant firms hire armies of lawyers and lobbyists and economists to fight the government. And we do need to make sure the deck is not stacked against the public. Carl Shapiro, I've got one last question for you, because I do hear you saying that there is a way to move or there should be a way to move forward that both um, controls monopolies or, or reduces uh, their negative impact on the economy and society, but also won't necessarily crash and burn in the courts, uh, given the laws that we have now. So can you just take 30 seconds to describe to me, like, what is that? How, how, to, how to achieve that? Well, first, I have to say I disagree with Rohit Chopra. I, I've worked with the FTC as their expert for, for litigation and the Staples Office Depot merger, the Qualcomm case, the activist case that went up to the Supreme Court and pay for delay for drugs. And the staff in all cases was pushing to develop a case, and those cases went forward. So we, we, that's the history of the agency, and that should be continued. Um, but um, more generally, um, what we need to do, we need to be smart. For example, the, the agencies are revising the merger guidelines. I have a paper suggesting how to do that with Nancy Rose at MIT. And you need to offer the courts ways to tighten things up that is consistent with case law and good economics and, uh, and move the courts through the persuasive arguments that the agencies bring and by litigating these cases smartly. Until we get new legislation, that's how we can move forward. And it's, a, it's not a super fast process, but that's what we've got, at least until Congress acts, and that's what I'm fighting for. Well, Carl Shapiro, currently a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and formerly Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Economics at the DOJ's Antitrust Division. Professor Shapiro, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Jack, that's it. We've only got two minutes left in this week-long series now covered a lot of ground. And so I'm just wondering, what do you come away with, with this idea of democracy and monopolies in America in 2022? Well, I think the the, the vision that uh, Lena Khan and her colleagues are pushing forth 
is consistent with Justice Brandeis' vision that we need in America freedom from public and private power. The American libertarian tradition only emphasizes public power, government surveillance, you know, not getting warrants, looking in your private. Yet who are the big invaders of privacy today? Is it the government or is it Facebook that, that, that commercializes and makes money off our, off our privacy, off our uh, information? So there's this new form of power uh, against, against the individual. We, we have found out that uh, in 75% of industries, uh, there's been concentration. I mean, and, and it's in, in coffins and wireless carriers, sanitary, paper products, soda, tires, you name it. Those are all serious matters, and they may, have, they may impinge on inequality in the way that Matt says, because there are fewer companies competing. But no danger is as grave, no threat to democracy is as grave as that for, by, you know, posed by the big tech. Because there we have this picture of, of what Shoshana Zuboff has called surveillance capitalism. They make money off our privacy. And that's something the law may not be able to reach. Hmm. Or not yet, at least, right? Because that's the whole thrust yes. of what uh, right. Khan and um, the other neo-Brandeisians are saying, that the laws have to catch up to the market realities of today. So we'll see what, what they do in the coming months and years. Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst and author of Age of Betrayal, The Triumph of Money in America, 1865 to 1900. Jack, thank you so much for being with us all week long. Thank you, Magda. And folks, if you haven't heard all of our episodes, I really think you should. So jump over to where you get your podcast, look for On Point, and go back and listen to our entire special week-long series, More Than Money, The Cost of Monopolies in America. Thanks for listening. This is On Point.